0: This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles this morning and be turning with me again to the book of Romans, which I'm sure you've found, Romans chapter 8. We're moving into a a new section of Scripture that deals with the same topic Paul has been dealing with, In the book of Romans, really uh, from uh, chapter 6 on, and that is the topic of sanctification. I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I want to read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and um, then I want to go to the end and read verses 37 through 39. We're actually going to begin looking this morning at the first 17 verses. Um, And this will be part one of that particular section of Scripture. If you're wondering how we're going to divide this, but we're only going to look at part of verses 1 through 17. We'll stop before we get to verse 9. So let me begin reading in Romans 8 and verse 1, understanding that Paul wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then skip with me to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless His holy word. Please be seated and let's ask Him that He would bless our time of preaching this morning. Father, we are grateful for the clarity of Your Word. We're grateful for the power of Your Word. And at times we are even perplexed by the depth of Your Word. We need Your help this morning as we enter Romans chapter 8. We need Your help more than ever to understand the depth of the riches of the gospel as it is applied in the life of the Christian and the area of sanctification. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us clarity of thought, and give us hearts that are willing to follow hard after You. By the power of the Spirit that indwells us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8 is one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible, and Romans eight one is cherished by some, I think, as maybe the most comforting expression of the gospel in all of Scripture. Um, Indeed, after discovering the sinner's guilt before the court of heaven, which we saw primarily in chapters 1 through 3, but even after that, To hear the words in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is truly heavenly music to the soul. James Boyce is therefore compelled to tag Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. And he says that Romans 8, 1 is the most succinct definition of the gospel. So if you are here this morning and you don't understand the gospel, read Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul does not stop at Romans 8.1. That glorious truth of no condemnation is really only the tip of the spear, leading God's chosen race, His holy nation, to even greater experiences of glory over sin post-conversion because of the basis of the work of Christ's redemption. Chapter 8 begins with the powerful and very present ministry of the Holy Spirit enabling the Christian to defeat sin in his or her life before soaring to the glorious truth that even present suffering paves the way for greater glory and eternity future. And then Paul closes with a masterpiece, a doxology of devotion. He soars even higher as he explains to us and describes to us God's eternal love for his people by asking a series of questions in sort of a, a catechism form to answer that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of Christ. So Romans 8 is rich with theological truths of the gospel. And it is accompanied with the work of all three persons of our triune God. That's how glorious this passage of Scripture is. Romans uh, chapter 8 is nothing short of breathtaking. It leaves the believer with the eternal comfort and the power of the saving gospel. And Paul was a good preacher. He liked to work in categories of three. He speaks about the work of the gospel as a work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He speaks about the work of the gospel as a past work, a present work, and a future work. He speaks about the gospel as he speaks about the inner person, that is the mind, the outward person, that is the flesh, and the upward person of the Spirit who comes down to indwell believers. It therefore not only expands our heart, ready to burst with gratitude and devotion to God, but it also stretches our minds to explode with awe at the richness of the depth of this triune work of salvation. Romans chapter 8 stamps upon the soul the truth of the gospel from eternity to eternity, from glory to glory, from the beginning of redemption all the way to the end of redemption. In fact, we begin in Romans 8.1 with the words, no condemnation, and then Paul concludes with the words in Romans 8.39, there is no separation. And in between the no condemnation and no separation, in between is this reality of no defeat for the Christian who is empowered by the Spirit of God. Because our God is undefeated, His people cannot ultimately be defeated. Because God always accomplishes what He sets out to do. And His people therefore can be confident that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. To borrow Paul's words from Philippians 1.6. But as we look at Romans 8, there is also a great contrast with chapter 7 as Paul begins to describe the ministry of the Spirit here in chapter 8. The spirit, of course, was implied or hinted at in chapter 7, but the focus was the law of God, mentioned 31 times, whereas the law is spoken about in chapter 8, but the emphasis is the spirit. The spirit of God is spoken about some 19 times. So man's inability because of the flesh was the emphasis of chapter 7, whereas man's ability due to the energizing work of the spirit is emphasized in chapter 8. In short, the contrast boils down to the weakness of the law in chapter 7 versus the strength of the Spirit, chapter 8. So the stumbling of the Christian in sanctification, which was emphasized in chapter 7, is contrasted with the success of the Christian in sanctification as an emphasis in chapter 8. So as we go through this, I'm just going to warn you, you are going to feel like you are drinking from a fire hydrant. And you're not going to be able to hardly catch air until we get to the end of chapter 11. And as we swim the depths of God's rich truth, we're going to move swiftly. I'm going to try to let you come up for air every now and then to be gracious. Um, But you need to buckle your seatbelts for the ride because you're going to get wet with God's truth. And when you get to chapter 9, you're going to be so soaking wet, there's not going to be enough time to dry off before we get back into Romans chapter 9 and we speak about the great doctrine of God's sovereignty. But you need to be encouraged because God's truth is like an ocean where the strong can swim, but God's truth is also shallow enough that the weak Christian can wade in the waters and still be refreshed. Chapter 8 really encourages all Christians, as Paul teaches us, that the Holy Spirit enables believers to defeat sin experientially. Now, that's very comforting considering we just came out of chapter 7. Where Paul, by his own testimony, said that sin oftentimes defeats us in our lives. The things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things that we do, we we hate to do. It's interesting, however, to me that there is not one command given in chapter 8. I mean, as Paul speaks about the ministry of the Spirit, he speaks in such a way that the ministry of the Spirit is so effective, there's no need for a bunch of commands. If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, there is a sense in which obedience will come natural to you. And chapter 8 helps us to see that. In fact, chapter 8 is really all positive. There are no commands and the only negatives, no condemnation in Christ and no separation from Christ are positive. So even the negative statements are actually positive statements. This is a tremendously, tremendously encouraging passage of scripture. Now we want to begin looking just at verses 1 through 17 because in these verses, The ministry of the Spirit is captured by four actions that are manifested in the children of God. Let me put that to you another way. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in a ministry in your heart and in your life, in the heart of every true child of God. He is active, and there are four actions which will manifest themselves in your life. Here are the four actions. We find here in verses 1-17, through 17, first of all, the liberating ministry of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the controlling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Third, the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, the witnessing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now there is so much here, we cannot get through all four points. So we're just going to look this morning at the first two actions of the Holy Spirit. It is a liberating ministry of the Spirit on your life, and it is a controlling ministry of the Spirit on your life because of the gospel. So let's begin to look at these. Number one, we see in verses one through four, the Spirit's ministry or work of liberating. The Spirit's ministry or work of liberating. Notice verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he says there is now That means at the present time. If one is in Christ Jesus at the present, then he or she is no longer an Adam. Cross-reference Romans chapter 5. Christians have been liberated. They have a new identity, and that identity is not Adam. It is Christ. And the word therefore points back to Paul's argument, really his entire argument throughout the epistle all the gospel truths about salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To make this point in verse 1, God's uh, punishment of His Son, Jesus Christ, because of that, there is no punishment for us who are in Christ. That's what he means by the word condemnation, when he says there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation is punishment. In fact, the Greek term katakrima is a law court term. That's what it is. So not only are believers not sentenced to death, but believers don't have executed upon them that executing sentence of death on the judgment day. We've been liberated. We've been set free from the judge of heaven and earth. Now there are times in the worldly realm where a judge will sentence someone to execution, but maybe they die while they're in prison or maybe they get off on parole or whatever and the execution never actually takes place. Well, the gospel, because of the sovereign, regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit, liberates us not only from the present wrath of God, which has been poured out, Romans 1, the sentence has been made, the wages of sin is death, but we've also been liberated from any future judgment. We're no longer under the wrath of God, and we will never be under the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle John put it this way, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God the Father is the judge, and Jesus is our defense attorney. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So no condemnation, verse 1, no condemnation exists for the believer now or ever, because first of all, he paid, Jesus paid the debt of sin. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 1.9. No condemnation exists for the believer now or ever, not only because he paid the debt of sin, but number two, he placed the garment of his righteousness upon us. Romans 5.1, we've been declared righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So no condemnation exists for the believer now or ever because he paid the debt of sin, he placed the garment of his righteousness on us, and number three, he promised us a share of his heavenly inheritance. Jesus said that in John 14, if I leave, I go and prepare a place for you. Ephesians 1, Paul says that the Holy Spirit, verse 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So Jesus has promised us there is no condemnation. He has promised to us and given to us the down payment of the Holy Spirit, which is a reminder to us, a seal to us, that in the future, not only will we not be condemned, but we will receive the same glorious inheritance of God's only begotten Son, So if you ask me this morning, what is a Christian? I'm going to tell you to look at Romans 8.1. It is one, verse 1, who is in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That is simply what a Christian is. Now, several years ago when I did my doctoral thesis, I chose to write on this very topic, the doctrine of union with Christ. And I discovered that Paul used that phrase, in Christ Jesus or in Christ, some 164 times in his epistles. It was his favorite doctrine. In my opinion, it is the most glorious doctrine. A Christian is someone who is united to Christ. They are in Christ Jesus. That's why there is no condemnation for them. So understand this morning, a Christian is not someone who simply knows about Christ. A Christian is not simply someone who has heard about Christ. A Christian is not someone who has uh, sat under the teaching of Christ. And a Christian is not even someone who who might believe that there was a Christ. And maybe you believe in Christ. You believe that He existed. No, a true Christian is not superficially associated with Jesus. A true Christian is truly part of Jesus, truly united to Jesus, intricately bound. And Paul's been speaking about this back in Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus died. You died with him on the cross. Your sin died with him. Jesus was raised. You will be raised someday. There is no condemnation for the true child of God. And that is why Paul made statements like the one that he made in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now the agent of that new birth is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. So Christians are individually members of Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Christians, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, have been baptized by one spirit into the one body of Christ. That is the trajectory that Paul is speaking about by that phrase, in Christ Jesus, and the declaration in verse 1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he continues that sort of thought in verse 2. Notice your Bibles. He says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I want you to circle the word for. It is the Greek word gar. It could be translated because, indicating that Paul in verse 2 is providing the reason that no condemnation exists for believers in Christ. And I just need to stop, this is probably a good time to do this, and tell you that as we work through this text, Paul is really saying two things. He is saying that the Spirit of God liberates us. He provides freedom from sin's penalty. But secondly, he provides freedom from sin's power. That's the liberating ministry of the Spirit. We have been pardoned from sin, and we are being purified from sin. So forensically, that's a law term, legally, objectively, through justification, because God has declared you righteous, if you are a believer, you've been freed from sins penalty. So there is a sense in which no condemnation exists over you because you've been freed from the penalty of sin. But Paul is also speaking about the fact that currently you are being freed from the power of sin, not just the penalty of sin, hell, but the power of sin. So he's speaking about justification, freedom from the penalty of sin, as well as sanctification, freedom from the power of sin. And this work of the Spirit is somewhat subjective. Justification is objective. It is final, it is a declarative act. But sanctification is somewhat subjective. Have you ever seen the Spirit of God? How do you measure someone's holiness? I mean, it's not like you can put someone's holiness in test tube A and then put someone else's holiness in test tube B and compare the test tubes to see who has more fluid of holiness. There's a subjectivity to it. But what Paul is describing is the work of the Holy Spirit. He not only saves in a liberating way, but he sanctifies in a liberating way. And you need to remember that. Remember, he just came out of chapter 7 and the discouraging news in verses 14 and following that the power of the flesh sometimes gains the upper hand even in the life of a true Christian. So after mentioning that, Paul wants to encourage believers that they are so intricately tied to Jesus, united to him that He has not left us alone in our struggle with sin. He has not left us alone in our temptation to sin. You could think of it this way. God is not the type of liberator that comes in and delivers us from those that are ruling over us. No, He stays and He rebuilds. It's not like He's a liberator that comes and invades and then evacuates, only allowing sin to return to, not, to dominate the very people He's liberated. No, God stays with us. He stays as our King and our Helper and our Lord and our Protector. So keep that in mind. But notice verse 2, because he refers to the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit as the law of the Spirit of life. Do you see that? The law of the Spirit of life. That's who, he says, set you free or liberated you. Now, it's clear that the Spirit of life is none other than the Holy Spirit Jesus said in John 6 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help in fact the spirit of God creates physical life and the spirit of God creates spiritual life Psalm 104 verse 30 when you send forth your spirit they are created and we read or read in Genesis chapter 1 that the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters So the Spirit of life is obviously the Holy Spirit. He is the author of life. You could put it this way. The Holy Spirit writes or authors a new book about eternal life every time He sovereignly moves on a soul to birth them into the kingdom of God. He's writing a new story of salvation. He is the life-giving Spirit. He is the Spirit of life. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ as John Murray says in his commentary. So notice verse 2. He says that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free, has liberated you, and then that phrase, in Christ Jesus. He says that, again, repeating verse 1, in Christ Jesus, a favorite phrase of Paul, because it's only those who place faith in Christ Jesus who are saved. But if you are saved... The Holy Spirit gets all the credit and the glory. You don't get any individual fame or credit for that. It was a sovereign work of God. He gave you the faith to place in Christ Jesus. It was the Spirit that provided that way. But the question is, what is the law of the Spirit? We know the Spirit of life is the Holy Spirit, but in verse 2 when Paul says the law of the Spirit, what is that? Well, here's where we have to put our thinking caps on because Paul sometimes, as we've seen, uses the word law in the sense of a principle, a force, or an influence. This could be a bad analogy, but you could think of the law of gravity. There's a certain principle and force that is naturally at work there. So law here in verse 2 is the principle of the very essence of the Holy Spirit, The law of the Spirit of life is therefore the operative effectual power of the Holy Spirit to free and to liberate the Christian. And what does He liberate us from? Well, notice the contrast. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You've been with us as we've been studying Romans. Paul mentions the law of sin and death in Romans chapter 7. And he even says in Romans 7 that the law of sin and death is so powerful that sometimes it gains the upper hand over a true Christian. But here in verse 2, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is a greater operating force than the law of sin and death. The Spirit sets you free. Very interesting phrase there. It's in the aorist in Greek, and the aorist tense refers to a decisive act. So this is a decisive action of the Spirit of God. Once you are justified, you are then positionally sanctified by the Spirit, which then leads to the progressive sanctification of the Spirit. The gospel is so powerful, and the Spirit is so decisive in His action. Listen to this. That he liberates you and I as Christians, not only from the penalty of sin, justification, but also the power of sin, sanctification. In fact, Paul has hinted at this earlier. Go back to chapter 6, verse 18. You have been set free, Paul says, from sin, and you've become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you weren't able to be righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin... You have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. So all of those who are justified will be sanctified and therefore have eternal life. I like to quote John Murray, the famous professor of theology in his commentary on verse two, he says, and I quote, verse two is to be interpreted in terms of a power that is operative in us And that the ruling thought has respect to our deliverance from the power of sin. That is the power of the law of sin and death. Rather than deliverance from the guilt of sin. The thought moves in the realm of internal operation. And not that of objective accomplishment. We must not assume however that the basis upon which this internal operation rests. And upon which it derives its power is far from the apostles thought. Let me put that to you in simple terms. Murray is simply saying Paul is speaking about sanctification, the liberating work of the Spirit of God post-conversion that delivers you from the power of sin. But he says Paul can only talk about that sanctification because he's already talked about justification. So the internal work of the Spirit in liberating us from the power of sin is based and predicated upon the objective reality that you've been justified and the penalty of sin has been removed. But there's two ways there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ because the Spirit has removed the penalty of sin through the new birth and He is in process of removing the power of sin. Now, some of you who love to study theology will know that the Reformed Confessions make a distinction between justification and sanctification. There is a distinction, but there is not a separation. I think Calvin is the best on this, and I'm not going to quote him verbatim, but Calvin said something like this. He said, Christ cannot be divided, and we should be careful not to chop Jesus up into little pieces. He says something to the effect of that all those that are powerfully justified will be powerfully sanctified to the last man. Because we are in full union with Christ, we receive fully all of the benefits. We receive every part of Christ, not just justification, but also sanctification. And while we're talking about it, in the end, even our glorification. Another Reformed writer, William Hendrickson, and I will quote him, says what Paul is saying is that for those who not only forensically are in Christ Jesus, the guilt of their sins having been removed by his death, but also spiritually the sanctifying influences of his spirit dominating their lives, for them there is now no condemnation. Here's a little formula to help you think through this. God's law has right, but God's law has no might. In other words, God's law has a right to rule over you and to rule over me. That is God's standard. But it has no might. It has no power to give you to help you. Obey it. On the other hand, the law of sin and death has might, quite a bit of power, because of the flesh, but it has no right. It has no right to rule over you. So the law has right, but no might. The law of sin and death has might, but no right. What Paul is saying in verse 2 is that the Spirit alone has the right sovereignly and the might powerfully to both save you, liberate you from the penalty of sin, and sanctify you, liberate you from the power of sin. Now, I say all of that because you need to have that understanding as we move into verse 3. Notice what Paul says For God has done what the law weakened. By the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Very interesting expression for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, the liberation of the spirit His liberating work on you is based upon God sending the son in the world. So the spirit doesn't work apart from the accomplished work of redemption, And Paul says the law wasn't going to save us. This would not do, and as he says in verse 3, this could not do. Why could the law not save? Notice he says, because the law was weakened by the flesh. You say, now wait a second. Paul said in chapter 7 and verse 12 that the law is holy and good and righteous and true. The psalmist says that. So how can Paul say that the law was weakened by the flesh? Well, not because the law itself has failed. No, but because man's flesh, sinful nature, has weakened the law, rendering it powerless. I'll put it to you this way. Sinful human flesh made perfect obedience an impossibility. You were born as a sinner before you ever actually committed an actual transgression. You were born in your father, Adam. And because you have that flesh, It makes obedience to the law an impossibility. So the problem is not the law, it's the flesh. And that's why Paul says, but what the law could not do, the end of verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, God has what? God has done. So God did something to provide a solution to the weakening power of the law because of sinful flesh. And what was it? How did he do it? Note the rest of verse 3. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. By sending His own Son, that's His unique Son, that's His beloved Son, John 3.16, He sent Him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. This simply means He became human in the Incarnation. But unless you want to believe as the docetists believed, they said that Jesus was not really human. We can't affirm that by what Paul says, because he clearly says he was human here. He says in verse 3, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Hebrews 4, verse 15, he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7, 26, Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be treated as a sinner on our behalf. So Paul is not saying that Jesus is sinful, but he's also not saying that somehow Jesus wasn't in the flesh. Jesus not only assumed a human nature, but he did so without giving up his deity. Jesus had two natures, human and divine, and they were indissolubly united, and each of those natures kept their essential properties. So Jesus may have been weakened by sin in the sense that he was in a fleshly body, And he was tempted to sin, and he had to endure the pain of a human body, the emotions of a human body, but he did not have sin in and of himself in his body. Notice again, Paul does not say in verse 3 that Jesus was in sinful flesh. Jesus was not in sinful flesh because Jesus was sinless. Nor does Paul say that Jesus is in the likeness of flesh. Jesus wasn't in the likeness of flesh. He really had flesh. Paul doesn't say that Jesus was in sinful flesh. He doesn't say he was in the likeness of flesh. He says that he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is very precise wording because the flesh of Jesus was both real and at the same time sinless. It was real flesh and it was really sinless all at the same time. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to have real human flesh to represent us as the second Adam, but he couldn't be a sinner. He couldn't be tainted with sin, or he would not be the appropriate sacrifice in representing us and being perfect. That's all Paul's saying. And so he says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and notice this, and for sin. Now that doesn't mean he came to commit sin, obviously. He didn't come for sin, in the sense that it was a lover that he wanted to attach himself to. He came for sin in the sense that he came to deal with sin. He came to devastate sin. He came to destroy sin. He came to deactivate sin by his work upon the cross. And what did he do to sin? Notice the rest of verse 3. Paul says he condemned sin in the flesh. Now that's a big deal. This again is law court language. The word condemned is used. But this time Paul pictures sin as a defendant in court that has no defense. And the verdict goes against sin and sin is condemned. And this was by way of the incarnation in Christ's flesh, his human nature, that God condemned and punished the sins of his people. That's the substitutionary atonement of Christ. So there is no condemnation in us. Because there was condemnation in Christ and in His his flesh. The author of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaks about Jesus' suffering in the flesh in great detail. Surely He has borne our griefs, He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with His wounds we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth and this was the will of the Lord Isaiah says to crush him to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt and that's what God did he made him bear. Our iniquities, accounting him as unrighteous, though he was righteous. So the work of the Spirit is purely and only and categorically predicated upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit works in conjunction with the redemptive work of Christ. Now we don't want to leave out verse 4 because it really pulls everything together regarding the liberating work and ministry of the Spirit. Paul goes on to say, Why did the Spirit do this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, here is where you need to remember what I said earlier about the liberating work of the Spirit, freeing us not only from the penalty of sin, justification, that objective legal declaration, but also freeing us from the power of sin, sanctification, that subjective internal work. He says here, there is a righteous requirement of the law. That righteous requirement of the law has to include the sanctification process, not just justification. And here's why just because we are declared to be in the right, that is, Christ's obedience for us and justification, doesn't mean that God no longer requires his children to live according to the law, right? I mean, that's been Paul's whole point. The law is good. Now, I don't want you to charge me with being antinomian. I am not against the law of God. The law can't save. The law has right but no might. It doesn't have any power. But do we really believe that God is going to redeem us by Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law and then expect us to walk away and live any way that we want to live? It would be dishonoring to the Lord. So Paul's primary subject here is actually not sanctifica- or justification, it's sanctification. He's speaking about the liberating work of the Spirit and freeing us from the power of sin, which is obviously predicated upon justification. God's people have always been required to obey the law. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord God require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Deuteronomy 6 Verse 5 also repeats that same thing. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these commandments that I give you this day, you are to teach diligently to your children, to your son and to your son's son. Romans thirteen nine. love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus obviously says that, right? In Matthew chapter 22, that love of God and love of neighbor summarizes the law of God. And he even told the Pharisees, yeah, you tithe, And you do well at that. You tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you should still do those aspects and obey those aspects of the law without neglecting the weightier aspects like justice and love and mercy and forgiveness and true internal holiness. So don't misunderstand me. Though true with respect to justification, that the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in Christ, that is true, that is not what Paul's specifically teaching here. Because notice verse 4, he says, we've been saved in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. Of course it was fulfilled in Christ, but he wants his law fulfilled in us too as obedient children. This is not teaching salvation by works. This is not fusing justification and sanctification together. But it's also not severing the two as if they're not related. The one flows from the other. If you've been justified... You are being sanctified. You you will live a holy life. You will love the law of God. You will be obedient to God. That will be the trajectory of your life. Not perfect, Romans 7, but it will be the trajectory. In fact, you're so familiar with this, but I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because we see the same principles laid out here. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right? We can shut our Bibles because the Bible speaks about justification. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in Jesus. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing we have done. There's nothing we could do to ever earn it. Amen. But what does verse 10 say? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or we could say Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God predestined that we would walk according to His law after He saved us. That's sanctification. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, justification. Ephesians two ten sanctification. Same exact concepts throughout all of Scripture. But you ask, how can the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us, given all the disaster of Romans 7? And when you read Romans 7, you say, oh my goodness, I'm glad there's someone else in the world like me, because I don't do the things that I want to do a lot. And the very things that I do, I absolutely despise. I'm a walking contradiction. So how can the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us? Well, notice the end of verse four, Paul provides the answer. He says, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? The spirit. It's the power of the spirit who walk not according to the flesh according to the Spirit, that's a workmanship created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to walk in a way that honors Him, Ephesians 2.10. The word walk is peripateo, and throughout Scripture, the word walk describes metaphorically the Christian journey or experience, that the Christian life is a path we walk as we follow Christ. So if you ask me, is discipleship necessary for a Christian? The answer is, of course, if you are not picking up your cross and following after Jesus, you aren't a Christian. If your life is not marked by a desire to obey God, you are not a Christian. You aren't on the narrow path unless you want to follow Jesus, right? You're on the broad way if you don't want to follow him. But if you're on the narrow path, you don't follow yourself and your dreams and your heart and your ambitions and your desires. You follow Christ. And guess what? Christ walked according to the law. It was perfectly fulfilled in him. It's righteous requirements fulfilled in his act of obedience. So how else can you walk the narrow path following Christ if you're not following his law abiding footprints? Our feet are being conformed to his footprints as our image is conformed to his from one glory to the next. And every path has a direction. It goes somewhere. And every path has boundaries. And if you stay on the path, you get to the destination. Well, the Christian path has boundaries, and the boundaries are the law of God. We don't perfectly obey the law of God, but we perseveringly obey the law of God. And Christians may fall on the path and stumble. Christians may fall off the path and breach the boundaries of God's law, but a true Christian gets up and repents and keeps going. And how do we do that? Well, not in our strength, the end of verse four. The reason we don't walk according to the flesh is because we walk according to the spirit. The spirit is our power. He is the fuel that propels us forward, the spirit of God. I've told this story before and I've told my children many times. They love to hear the story and As a matter of fact, when I was back in West Virginia a few weeks ago, we drove by uh, my old house that that I grew up in, and I was showing a couple of the kids the, the creek behind the house. It's a very interesting history. We didn't know at the time that we lived there, but we found out very recently that my great, 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 great grandfather owned that plot of land as part of his farmland. Very interesting history. But as much as that land was in my family all those generations, as a four-year-old, I didn't know it that well because we went out in the woods one time with my dad to bury our dog, Cuddles, who had passed away. And you had to walk through tall weeds, and you kind of followed the creek, and then you went over to this place, and that's where I guess her grave still is to this day, I suppose. But me and my sister, she was six at the time, I was four. We said, Daddy, can we walk back to the house? He said, Yes, you can walk back to the house. Make sure you follow the path and follow the creek. And if you follow the creek, you'll get home. If you follow the path, you'll get home. Well, we did not follow his instructions. We did not stay on the path. And we ended up far away. It seemed like for about five hours. The reality is it was probably only about 20 or 30 minutes before we then started heading back the other way. And we heard the voice of our father calling us home. And we ran into his arms. You see, for the Christian, he may go the wrong way. And he may get in tall weeds and be in a mess that he can't get out of. But he always hears the voice of the Father. He always comes back home in humility, in weakness, in fear, in trembling. But he always finds his way back on the path. So a holy life, listen carefully, is really the ultimate divine purpose of the incarnation and salvation you say well I thought the ultimate purpose was to save me from the wrath of God in hell it was that's the immediate effect you've been saved from the wrath of God but the purpose of the incarnation and salvation in the gospel is that you live a holy life verse 4 that the righteous requirements of the law be fulfilled in your life you have an obligation to that not to earn salvation but out of gratitude to God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the end God had in view when sending his own son was not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. And that's why that phrase in verse four, in order that you ought to highlight and circle. God saved you and ordered that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in you who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And just turn with me just briefly to Galatians chapter two, because I don't want your head to get too big or mine. Paul says in Galatians two twenty, I have been crucified with Christ, but notice he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, look, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. It's Christ who empowers me. It's really amazing. Any failure that Paul had, he took the blame for. Oh, wretched man that I am. Romans seven twenty four. Any success he had, he gave all the glory to God. This isn't really me living my life. This is God. This is God's power. That's why I live obediently. Galatians two twenty. So our walk is fueled by the liberating effect and power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. That's the first ministry or work of the Spirit. The Spirit's ministry or work of liberating. Now let's just mention the second action of the Spirit. Not only the liberating ministry or work of the Spirit, but there's also the Spirit's ministry or work of controlling. The Spirit's... Ministry of liberating, verses 1 through 4, takes us now to the Spirit's ministry of controlling, verses 5 through 8. Notice verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's a very simple contrast and explanation. He uses the word for again because he's giving evidence of the liberating work of the Spirit. What is the evidence? Here's the evidence. Something different controls you than used to control you. Your sinful flesh used to control you. Now the Spirit of the living God controls you. So the contrast is those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh obviously are non-Christians. And what do they do? Verse 5, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. The things of the flesh. What are those things? The works of the flesh are evident, Galatians 5. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, the list goes on. It's long. And notice, it's not just things that we do with fleshly body parts. It's internal sins like anger and enmity and strife and division and envy. What does Paul say? He says those who set their minds on the things of the flesh are not those who live according to the Spirit. That's not what a Christian does. He doesn't set his mind on the things of the flesh. That means you live your life walking according to your sinful nature. What do you most talk about? What are you most interested in? What are you most absorbed in? What activities are you most engaged in? That is who you really are. Is your life controlled by a desire to honor Christ no matter the consequences? No matter what that means financially, no matter what that means physically, doesn't matter. You see, the seed of sin begins in the mind, doesn't it? Remember, Paul said that back in Romans 7, 7. He said, what what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? If it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, I really don't think Paul had a real struggle with lust. It's possible he did. Many people say this was the thing he could never overcome. He had a strong struggle with lust. By the way, it's not just men who struggle with lust. It's also women. And especially as we grow more and more into a pornographic culture, it is women who are just as equal with men in terms of their sinful and sensual desires for that which does not belong to them. The Bible says, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not desire what is not rightfully and lawfully yours. So forget about the fact that maybe Paul struggled with this. Guess what? All men and women struggle with lust. And it's not just sexual lust. The reason Paul brings about the fact that it was the law thou shalt not covet is a deeper issue, and that is because all sin begins in the heart. The seed of sin begins with the lusts of the flesh. Paul says a true Christian doesn't set his mind on those things. You're not absorbed in those things. A true Christian... Who walks according to the Spirit, verse 5, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit. They walk according to the Spirit. They concentrate on, they're absorbed in, they're preoccupied with, they're interested in. They talk about the things of the Spirit. They are grieved over sin in their life and in the lives of others. They are joyful at the opportunity to obey Christ and to follow Him. Again, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. In other words, the law does not empower you to demonstrate those things. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. That's why it was such a struggle for Paul, because he knew the law had no power, and yet sometimes he fell. And the lust of the flesh, and instead of the fruit of the Spirit, he would do things that at moments made him look like he wasn't a Christian. So what is the point of contrast in Romans 8? It's an issue of control, right? Either you're controlled by the sinful nature or you're controlled by the Spirit of the living God. You can't live in two worlds at the same time. You're either on the side of God or you're on the side of sin. You're either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell. There is no neutral ground. There is no such thing as autonomy. You're controlled by one power or another. Everyone is. And also this point of contrast is not just about control. It's also about outcome, which results from the control of your life. Notice uh, Romans eight and verse six for to set the mind on the flesh. Now he's going to explain for to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's the outcome. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Death is the result of a fleshly mind. The joy of living sapped and only doom awaiting in the end. But life and peace for those living by the Spirit's controlling power. Life and peace, assurance, forgiveness, hope and joy. And peace that passes all understanding. Isaiah 26.3. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So understand, Paul is not speaking about a life of perfection. Read Romans 7. He's speaking about a Godward disposition. Not perfection. A Godward disposition. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, we won't go there for sake of time, but Jesus told Peter, Get your mind out of the gutter. Your mind is set on things of the flesh. Do you remember that? And certainly it was. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. And then we see Peter walk along, and eventually he got out of Romans 7 and he got into Romans 8. He did some pretty heroic things. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of the kingdom. And he suffered for it. But then we see him in Galatians. And Paul has to confront him to his face. Because although he had been eating with Gentile believers, some of the Jewish believers were whispering about it. And Peter said, I don't really want to do that anymore. And he got up from the table. And Paul confronted him to his face. And he said, you are a hypocrite. And of course, there's Peter again. We can identify with him, can't we? Repenting again. He goes from Romans 7 to Romans 8. Back to Romans 7. Back to Romans 8. And Jesus told him, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. And Satan desires to sift all of us like wheat. But as Jesus promised Peter, Jesus prays for us, John 17. He intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us. So it's impossible to live solely in the world of the flesh and in the world of the Spirit at the same time. But you can live like you're not a Christian for a brief period of time. The Puritans called that backsliding backsliding into sin but the righteous requirement of the law is impossible to be fulfilled in someone who is only in that world of the flesh notice verse 8 I'm sorry verse 7 for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot that's very interesting the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it's not a friend of God it doesn't submit to God's law indeed it can't there is no power There's right with the law. There's no might. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Non-Christians cannot please God. Why? Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. No faith in Jesus. Going back to Peter again, he lacked faith on multiple occasions. We just mentioned a couple. Jesus, I don't want you to go to the cross, and I'm not going to eat with those Gentile believers. But you remember he also demonstrated faith, didn't he? He was the only one of the 12 They had enough faith to get out of the boat and walk on the water. But what happened when he failed in his faith is that he took his eyes off of Jesus. When he put his eyes back on Jesus, he made his way finally staying on his course to Jesus. So let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You will be sanctified to the degree that you meditate upon Christ. And you keep your eyes on Christ, not on yourself, not on your performance, but on Christ, on the power of the gospel, the indwelling, controlling presence of the Spirit. That's why one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And really, self-control could really categorize all the fruits of the Spirit because self-control is really the Spirit's control of yourself as a Christian. So the liberating and controlling ministry of the Spirit teaches us several things. Number one, it teaches us that sanctification or holiness is God's ultimate will for the Christian, I don't know what God's will is for your life in terms of your vocation and where you live and how many children you have and all of those things, but I know this. God's will for every Christian is a life of holiness. God condemns sin in Christ for us so that the righteous requirement of the law might appear in us, that it might be manifested in us. Secondly, sanctification is hard to measure, but it consists in obeying the law of God. It's somewhat subjective, but if you want to know whether or not you're pursuing sanctification, how is your obedience to God's law? That is a valid measuring stick, according to the Reformed Confessions, and I believe according to Scripture. But here we have to be careful because what does David say to God in Psalm 51 after his big sin or sins that he committed? He says, For God, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You aren't pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken heart contrite heart. Of course, obedience to the law is a measurement of holiness, but we have to be very careful not to get into the waters of self-righteousness. A humble and broken heart is much better than sacrifices and obeying the law of God, observing the temple In the Old Testament and all the requirements that God had or in the New Testament, all the things God requires, attending Lord's Day worship and taking the sacraments and sitting under the preaching of God's word and being in prayer with God's people and living a moral life, those things can deceive you into thinking that you are a Christian when you're actually not a Christian. God desires more than that, a broken and contrite heart. But if you want a measurement of how well you are growing in holiness, the law is a good place to start. Number three... Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit, so stay humble. And number four, sanctification is non-negotiable for the Christian. These are all things that we learn from the liberating and controlling ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, we're not done yet because Paul gives two more actions of the Spirit. We'll look at those next time. I want to close this morning by going back to the Gospels. So take your Bibles and turn with me to John 8. We will not be here long, I promise. But there is a beautiful event that occurs in the life of our Lord with a woman who is caught in adultery. And I want you to see something in this passage, really just one thing. They bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they said to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, you obviously know this is a trap. The religious leaders who were part of this and leading this did not care for the woman, nor did they care for the law of God. They obeyed the parts they wanted to obey, and they were self-righteous about that, and they discontinued and disregarded the things about the law that other people couldn't measure, the things that were hidden away. They don't care about the woman. They don't care about the law. And in fact, there needs to be at least two witnesses. There aren't witnesses to the actual act, and they don't even bring the man which leads me to believe that maybe the man was there and maybe he was one of the religious leaders. Sounds like a typical self-righteous person. Look what this woman did. Well, Jesus could see all through that, but he also knew that it was expected that Jesus would forgive her. That was the expectation. He's loving and compassionate. But if he did forgive her, they would accuse him of disregarding the law because they bring the law up, right? This is what the law says. She needs to be stoned for her adultery. But if he condemned her, Then they would say, you know, all this business about Jesus preaching, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give them rest. That's just a bunch of bunk. Jesus doesn't give any rest to the weary. He told us to stone this woman. So we did. So what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus exercised the right as God, listen to this, to not condemn her based on the law, which, by the way, she was guilty of violating, Instead, based on his coming death for sinners in which he'd be condemned, he saved her in the same way that he saves us by grace alone. Notice verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Talking about the accusers. Has no one condemned you? There's that word condemned. And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice he doesn't say, neither do I condemn you, go in peace. He doesn't say, this isn't a big deal, I'll forgive you, you're pardoned, go on your way. No, he says, neither do I condemn you, go, and from now on, what? Sin no more. The reality is, she was guilty. And the reality is, the law did condemn her. But the reality of the gospel says, the finished work of Jesus Christ can cover that and can pay the debt. This woman went away, saved the same way we are saved and changed the same way we are changed. I presume she went on to live an obedient life because she was a true Christian. She wasn't condemned and her obedience and going to sin no more was not motivated out of works-oriented salvation, but out of gratitude for this man, Jesus, who didn't condemn her when she should have been condemned. And that is the gospel. It didn't free her to live any way she wanted to live. And Jesus never dared to say that. But she was no longer condemned. So now in liberty, she could go and live in obedience out of gratitude because of this precious gospel that freed her not only from the penalty of sin, condemnation, but also the power of sin, go and sin no more. And that, beloved, is a snapshot of all of us. We are accused and the finger is pointed at us. We know we are guilty and everyone else knows that we are guilty. And there's no getting off. There's no getting away apart from the saving redemption of Jesus Christ. So I hope you're encouraged this morning. Paul is at least beginning to provide the solution to Romans 7. And the solution is not to beat yourself up over how bad you are. We already know how bad you are. The solution is to look to Christ. And to understand you are no longer in Adam, you are in Christ, you've been liberated, and you need to draw upon the controlling work of the Spirit of God. How do you do that? The primary means of grace. You do what you're doing right now. You sit under the preaching of the Word of God, you observe the sacraments, and you pray that God will give you strength. Jesus is now interceding for you, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to go and sin no more. That's the encouragement. That Paul gives to us and will continue to give to us in Romans chapter eight. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.